This is Kamkunji, a podcast series by Errant Praxis. Welcome to Kamakunji, a podcast series by Errant Praxis. Errant Praxis is a digital gathering, a performance, an experiment, a happening initiated by the curator Paddy Anahori out of Cabo Verde. It is an active space in which to interrogate and interpret the ways in which we practice in, from, for, and in dialogue with African worlds, the continent, its islands, diaspora, and imaginaries. My name is DK Ose Osari. I'm co-founding principal of Low Design Office based out of Temagana and Austin, Texas and an assistant professor of architecture and engineering design at the Pennsylvania State University, which is where I am speaking to you from right now. Today we are talking with a very special guest, an architect, author, educator, and visionary. Hi, um, my name is Leslie Loco. I'm talking to you from Johannesburg. I'm the head of the Graduate School of Architecture, which I've been doing for about five years. I'm about to head off to New York to become the Dean of Architecture at CUNY, and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us to have this conversation. So you founded the GSA at at UJ, the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg. Now you are about to head across the ocean to direct another school of architecture in New York City. You have an MRC from the Bartlett and a PhD from the University of London. You have taught and studied architecture on four continents. And in your other life, you are a best-selling author. I want to talk with you today about design pedagogy or perhaps designing pedagogy. You know the piece on lowness that I wrote for your journal, which talks about how Africa is this sort of continental laboratory for radical experimentation. But there's this other question of Africa, that Africa is this terrain that once more everyone is trying to understand and know about, which is actually kind of weird. It's weird because a lot of students in the West are now going to Africa to learn about it, to experience another culture. Also, a lot of academics are trying to study it. It's art, biology, ecology, and geology. It's demographics, it's urban dynamics and political systems. It's popular culture and economic opportunities. It's a very weird privileging of people that have the luxury to come and study or do these things, and then they're considered to be experts. There are definitely Europeans that work in Africa for a period of time, sometimes paid, sometimes unpaid, who come from Norway or Iceland, Germany or the UK, and after gaining experience working in Africa, apply for a job, say, at UNESCO or for a private client, and are considered more of an expert on Africa than a young African architect who has lived and worked on the continent for their entire life. So against this backdrop, this loose configuration of of current conditions, how should we be thinking about training young architects in Africa, in the diaspora, and in the massively globalized world that we live in today? I mean, the interesting 
thing is um, somebody sent me or forwarded me an Instagram post where, and I don't know who the person was, who had listened to me, I think, talking in Australia. And he or she, I don't know, um, wrote something, and I'm going to paraphrase it really badly, that says, the thing I love about what she says or what she talks about is, is about an equality of imagination. And that when we speak about equality, we talk about it in terms of environmental equality, social equality, financial equality. We talk about equality in a much more, um, let's say, political and less creative sense. And I, I would say that one of the real takeaways from being at the GSA for five years was with the right teaching methodology in place, there's almost no limit to the ability of African students to think across categories in a way that I've very rarely ever seen European or American or let's let's say Northern Hemisphere students do. And I'm still slightly, both slightly bemused, but also um, very touched by it because it's very clear to me that that ability to think through things in really innovative innovative ways is where the real talent here lies. And it's not about making do, it's not about appropriation. I think it's fundamentally to do with a very deep ability to translate. I think there isn't a single African alive who doesn't speak more than one language. And if you think about it at a, at a, at a kind of epistemological, I can never say that word properly, level, all architecture or many built environment disciplines really are, is about an act of translation. You translate the idea into a drawing, the drawing into a model, the model into a building, the building into a city, and so on. So there's this constant sort of shift of meaning and shift of medium and shift of material. And it's something that, if applied in the right way, African students get in a way that no other students I've seen get. The real challenge for us, I think, is to be able to develop both a teaching methodology and a canon that facilitates that. I think for the majority of the time here, we're using a canon that, that resists the translation. It's about a kind of mimicry or about a, a sort of pastiche. And that very deep act of internalizing ideas and allowing them to re-emerge, influenced by what you already know, I think people here are very uncomfortable with that. And I think, you know, particularly in South Africa, because the majority of, particularly in architecture, the majority of teachers are, are white South Africans who've never done that level of translation. And I'm always amazed. I mean, I've been here five years and I speak more Zulu than most of the people I know who've been here 50 years. <laughs> that I find, I just find it astounding that, you, you know, you could live in France for 50 years and you wouldn't even know how to say hello. So at, at a very kind of deep level for me, this is about language. And I think architecture is also a form of language. Um, and I think that's the clearest way I can describe what, what the five years here have been like. And I'm imagining um, from the student body that I've seen at, at City, the students are not unlike African students. They're first generation, they're immigrants, they come from, a, I mean, I think it's something like 134 nationalities in the school. So I'm actually really looking forward to seeing if, that, if, if the premise or the hunch is right, that, you know, these students who literally cross between worlds every single day, whether those worlds are class-based, ethnic, religious, whatever. It's that act of crossing that makes them so fertile. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, the idea of a canon, and you also mentioned this idea of translation. And I'm curious, when you say canon, 
Can you elaborate on that a bit more? Are you talking sure. in terms of, um, you know, this idea of what precedence would be or ways of thinking or knowing or design methods? Yeah. So, I mean, when I first arrived um, at UJ, so the GSA wasn't formed um, at that point, I was asked to teach in the master's program. And I remember going into the studio and there were 11 students, all white. And somebody said to me, um, they're going to show you their thesis statements. And I, I sort of looked at these documents and I thought, I've, I've never seen anything like this in architectural education. Like, I don't understand what you mean by thesis statement. So it turns out that they do a kind of pre-thesis year in their master's and then they go off and look in the library for thesis projects that have been done in the previous, I don't know, 20, 30 years. They do a kind of random you know, poll or something and figure out, okay, I'll, I'll do that one because that one did really well in you know, 1976 or whatever. And so they, can, they constantly rehash the same ideas. And the goal is always to rehash in the most accurate way possible, by, but disguising the fact that you're rehashing. So all of the energy goes into saying the same thing, but in a, in a slightly different way. And it seemed to have very, very little to do with design. So it was set up like a scientific document where you had your problem statement, your literature review, all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, somewhere there'd be an appendix where you'd have a few drawings and then you'd stand up in a crit and, and somehow try to marry these two um, outputs, let's say. And it was so far away from anything that I understood as an architectural project that I thought after a year of really battling with this, look, I've just got to change the curriculum completely. And luckily for me, UJ was in such bad shape. I mean, you literally had to bribe students to come into the master's program that they had nowhere to go. I mean, they could only get better. And when we changed to the unit system Africa, which is a much more, I mean, it's, it's not my system, Jesus, it's, you know, it's the AA almost verbatim. The enrollment went from, I think, 11 to 52 overnight. And suddenly the university understood, okay, there's potential in this, if only at the level of, of student fees. And I was very lucky that at the moment the school adopted a new curriculum, the student protests broke out around decolonization and transformation. So it was a kind of perfect storm in that there was a new methodology in place that actually at the time it was put in place, I wasn't really 100% sure how transformative it would be, but the political situation kind of overtook it. And we realized very, very quickly that it had to be transformative. And for me, the the, the way I strategized it was to say, look, we don't know yet what new canon is. We don't know what the precedents are. We don't know what the teaching methodology is. We don't know, we don't know what the means of representation are. We don't even know what the auxiliary disciplines are. But our job in, in this political kind of hotbed is to say that the school is the place that we must protect in order to find that out. So the, the school went very, very quickly from being a place of training to a place of investigation. And that was just, very, that was fortuitous. I think the timing couldn't have been better. And because the students were so vocal about their dissatisfaction, we were able, I think, to slip in changes under the rubric of decolonization and transformation that actually just gave the school two or three years of, of quite unprecedented freedom. And by that time, the caliber and the quality of the work coming out began to sell itself. So now the school is at about 115 students. Um, we, there's no succession plan, so I don't know who's going to take over from me. So everybody's incredibly nervous. But it was also um, a, a lesson for me in that, you know, it, at one level, it's quite easy to instigate change. 
you know, it's easy to be the provocateur who comes in from the outside and who disrupts things, but to sustain change is actually much harder. And for that, you don't only need energy and ambition and um, drive, you actually need infrastructure. And I think what's happened, certainly for me in the GSA, is that there is no infrastructure. For four and a half years, I've been the only full-time staff member. I mean, it is an absolutely ludicrous management system. Yeah. And it, I'm not leaving because of the students or because of the young staff. I'm leaving because I cannot order another roll of toilet paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I think on the one hand, it's it's been an amazing experiment. Um, whether it will last or not, I think, is an open question. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect, you know, the same could have been said for many quite radical schools. The AA was the same, you know, Cooper, SIARC, they've all been pushed, I think, by quite charismatic leaders. And in those instances, you know, I mean, it's taken the AA, whatever it was, you know, 60 years to, to, to acquire the ability to award their own degrees. I mean, that's yeah. quite a radical. It yeah. Yes, it just yeah. happened, yeah. Um, you know, South Africa... There are no private universities here, and it would have been impossible to establish a private school of architecture. But more and more, I, I think that is literally the only hope for this continent. Is, why, is why, why do you say that? I just don't think why? that university structures here have the kind of long-term agendas that that tertiary education needs. You know, I mean, increasingly you're. I mean, I, I probably even shouldn't go on record, but, you know, it's errant practice, so I'll say it. I think increasingly um, universities are beginning to behave like political institutions in that they start thinking about four-year terms. You know, tertiary education is a generational project. You've got to think in, in terms of 25 years. And I just don't know that we have the political or the economic stability anywhere on this continent to be able to have the luxury of doing that. And so certain disciplines which require much less... Um, I don't know what you call it, not questioning, because all, all disciplines question, but I think architecture is a particularly knotty one um, because the, 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 the canon, literally everything you study, particularly on this continent, is going to come from three, I think as, as far as I can work out, from three separate sources, the Bauhaus, the Beaux-Arts, or the British. I don't think there's a single school of architecture that has anything close to either a translated curriculum or its own curriculum. So, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting your daily reality in terms of what you're studying. Yeah. And to, to, to have that long-term investment to turn anger and frustration into rigorous disciplined thought, that you won't do that in four years. You'll yeah. be lucky if you do it in 25. You mentioned that it was a shift from training to investigation. I yeah. find this very interesting and very relevant for today because there's this perennial debate about whether schools of architecture should be focused on training, the sort of professional training of architecture, architecture students to become architects, almost at the level of skills acquisition um, or, you know, um, you know, all the things required of professional practice. And then on the other side, there's this idea that schools of architecture should be a place of experimentation for knowledge acquisition on some level, but also for knowledge production. 
and yep. doing that through you know a whole range of design methods and and making things and representation. And so I'm curious because again you talk about the the time that it would take to bring about a kind of maybe lasting or sort of more um, deeply rooted or complete transformation. But then there's also the fact that cities in Africa in particular are growing so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily all the cities at the same rate, but there's so much of a need for people to be involved with helping us imagine the future of where people are living and how the environment is created. And so there's kind of a tension between, um, in a way, how quickly we can we can raise an army of, of sort of design practitioners who can help to you know bring about these futures. And so my question is, do you think that that this is an issue which is um, needs to be addressed, or does it kind of address itself? Because investigation, I think, could make some people nervous that they they would say, "Well, how are you training architects if they're kind of just in this more freeform experimental phase?" Then we're going to be um, short staffed in a way. I mean, I, to be honest, I've never had a huge amount of. Um sympathy for, for the argument that you know African students shouldn't be allowed to experiment. And I don't know that experimentation is the only method by which new knowledge is produced. I think um, iteration and training and thinking, it doesn't necessarily have to be you know free, uh, a free-for-all. But I remember having a conversation with a South African academic, quite a well-known academic um, here, I think in the second year after the GSA had started, and it was the last time I ever spoke to her. And we were having coffee or breakfast together at a, at a cafe not far from here. And she says to me, you know, in a kind of liberal way, I, I need to tell you that you're being really irresponsible. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, there's no point in teaching black students to dream. They need to earn money. And, and I think mm. that the words verbatim out of my mouth were, fuck you, and I got up and I left. And we've never spoken since. We see each other on kind of conference panels and we, we kind of look away. And my is that you know African architecture students are like students everywhere. Africans are like people everywhere. There are 13 schools of architecture in this country. You know what? If 12 of them want to go off and train for the profession, please be my guest. One school, just one school, is going to do something slightly different. And it's amazing how um, that sets the cat amongst the pigeons. And I think, unlike most other places in the world, the, the pressure on Africans to do everything to tick every box, to get everything right, to address complexities that, you know, elsewhere in the world wouldn't even be, they probably wouldn't even be raised in the same breath, to me is is indicative of the, on the one hand, both the exceptionalism that Africans are expected to demonstrate, but on the other hand, with the most minimal resources, and, and, and I'm talking about educational resources. So... The, the, the task at hand, on the one hand, is so enormous and overwhelming that if you don't start somewhere and start somehow, in 50 years' time, I can almost guarantee we'll be talking about exactly the same things. Yeah. On the other hand, if you do start, the critique is always, well, you can cover one tiny portion of something, but what about the other 99% that could act, both government, tertiary institution, even at NGO level, to, to either upskill 
or to train differently are just simply not being met, which which means that the gap is is left for your Icelandics and your Norwegians and whoever to come on down because, you know, how many schools of architecture does the UK have for a population of 60 million? I think it's 36 schools of architecture. We're close to a billion people in Africa, and I think there's something like 27 in total. And, in the, and in the distribution of that is so random. I mean, you know, 330 million people with one school of architecture. That there's almost It's almost impossible for us to produce, even even if all you wanted to do was produce cat monkeys. Yeah. We, we can't produce them fast enough. And so the, the, the built environment, which for me is the, is, it's the kind of foundation of so many other things. It's, it's the foundation of public life and public culture. It's the foundation of nation building. It's the, you know, it's the foundation of a, a whole series of things. It's kind of being left in the worst possible way to pure market forces, which, which in Africa historically have been the most rapacious and violent and whatever the word is, you know, we will eat ourselves yeah. if given the opportunity. And so, I somehow see architecture as the kind of check and balance against that rampant development. And I'm not, just, I'm not talking about um, development as in, you know, developing world. And I'm not only talking about development as a city development. I'm, I'm saying the whole thrust towards modernity is wrapped up in a big kind of development. We've got almost no bulwark against it. So, you know, we're here making small kind of gestures and inroads where we can. But what's the alternative if you don't do that? You're talking about something in a way that's very massive and to some people a little bit mysterious when you talk about this sort of development apparatus. And so, you know, I have a two-part question, which is that I'm still somehow fixated on, uh, you mentioned your, your colleague, I guess, who said, you know, black, arch- black architecture students need to, learn mo- to earn money or something like this. So on some level, what's the responsibility of educational institutions to students? Do they have a responsibility to those students and what is it? And Absolutely. at the same time, what is, do these education institutions have a political responsibility? Do they need to be more explicitly active within this terrain that you're describing? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I remember um, quite a long time ago, I, I dated a guy who um, was Namibian, black Namibian, who had grown up in Geneva, and his father was the um, um, ambassador to the U, the Namibian ambassador to the UN. But he'd grown up in exile, and his dad had been at the UN in Geneva for something like 30 years. He'd been smuggled out of the country, you know, as a young man. And he talked to me once about the ed- education program that the SWAPO command in exile, and the ANC also did something similar which was to come back into the country, they were smuggling professors and you know, lecturers to give what they called political education to, to the masses. So you can imagine you know, some dusty town somewhere in the middle of Namibia, somebody rocks up and starts to develop Marxist theory to a bunch of, I don't know, car guards or security guards or whatever, because they deemed that that education was the fastest and the most expedient way to politicize the population. And I guess my point is that you know, education serves different purposes in different contexts. We still sit here with an education model that I think was not only developed on the back of implicitly engineering a relationship between the global north and the global south or between the imperial centers and and the colonies, but we've also been unable to translate that system into an ambitious, connected, a very youthful population. I mean, you know, 
the average age in Africa is 19. By definition, to me, it means that the nature of it, our education systems must be different because our constituency, our audience is different. But like many colonial or post-colonial societies, all we're worried about is, you know, are we doing things in the correct way? Are there enough footnotes? You know, am I being as European as I possibly can be because of the insecurity I feel about putting any other argument forward? And my point is, you know, Europe, if, if Europe was ever interested here, it's no longer interested. You know, Europe has its own problems. They're not sitting here looking to see whether South Africans have got the right number of footnotes. It's a completely different paradigm. So, again, I think the onus is on us, and I say us in a very, very narrow um, sense of the word. I say us as the people who can, who have the ability to make those translations. For me, that's what's required now. Africa is in the age of translation. Those of us who know what it's like there and know what it's like here, I think that's our special responsibility, is, is to, to somehow articulate what it means to be constantly crossing these worlds, whether it's youth versus experience, whether it's you know north versus south, whether it's versus developing. We've been doing that for most of our lives. There is a whole generation of people who, who know inside themselves what it is not just to translate between Chui and English, but to translate between the Queen's English and American English and Sutu. Yeah. That is where the, the real intellectual challenge lies. Um, and, 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 and in that sense, I would say a lot of the work that's being done, the work that the diaspora is doing, for example, the work that you're doing, it's very much part of that tradition. And our, our job, if you like, is to... Is to to gain currency, to, to gain the power to be able to, to lead those debates. And, so, and that's upsetting a lot of people. Yeah. Which, which leads me to another, another two-part question, which is that, um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that, that in a way one of the most remarkable attributes or characteristics or things which you've seen within the, the kind of milieu of the students at, at UJ is this ability to translate. And, yep. um, and you, know, you just now mentioned sort of Africa in the age of translation. I think I can imagine that as a fantastic book, if it's not already. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm also curious because there's increasingly a, a discourse around decolonizing design or yeah. decolonizing schools, education institutions, or whatever, um, at the same time that, in my own experience, I found that, you know, the, the, the strength of these educational systems that, for example, exist in Ghana today is that they still are incredibly good at colonizing the minds of the youth, that so many people yeah. that come through these educational systems, um, not that they have self-hate, but they have self-doubt about some of their yeah. own kind of yeah. cultural um, context. Um, yeah. So is translation sort of a way of, of, of addressing this question of decolonization? Does it need to be? Um, and is, is decolonization maybe, uh, is the term a red herring, or is it kind of a, a misreading in terms of what needs to be done? Um, but is, is translation actually a way that you can dismantle some of these systemic and structural um, kind of, uh, not just inequalities, but sort of biases in how we understand architecture yeah. and make it? I mean, 
I, I think um, decolonization has become, it's become its own end goal. You know, I've been so amazed over the past two or three years that I can go to places like, you know, Fayetteville or Brighton or Stockholm where people are talking about decolonizing the curriculum. And I think, wow, <laughs> it's a really strange place to be, to be doing that kind of work because, you know, part of the, part of the complexity, but also the richness, I don't mean this only problematically, and also the challenge of the colonial encounter is that for the colonized, that experience is, is in the skin. It's an embodied experience. It's a little bit like you started off talking about the Finns and the, the Norwegians and you know who come to build toilets in Africa and become expert. I mean, there's a certain manner in which when you gaze on something, you can know something about it. And I'm not suggesting that there are not people with highly developed um, sense of empathy who don't necessarily have to experience something in themselves in order to understand it. But I would say that those types of people are very rare. The, the focus of an educational system is actually unempathetic because you talk not in the first person, it is not personal, it is kind of abstracted. You, you, you take the person out of the knowledge in order to imbibe it again. So for me, there's a kind of catch-22, which is that your lived experience is not only not reflected in the knowledge that you're consuming, the knowledge that you're consuming is literally denying it. Hmm. And I keep saying to the students here that, you know, to, to be angry at something is really only the first step. It's easy to be angry. There's a reason why we call disciplines disciplines. There's a process of coming close to the knowledge, going back from it, some abstraction and empathy, you know, it has taken a long time for canon to become canon. It's gone through incredible changes. And what I appreciate here in, in, in South Africa about students' attempts to decolonize the curriculum is that they understand it as a process. Hmm. That decolonizing is an active verb. I, th I think what a lot of the West is looking for is that canon. It's a bit like saying, people saying, what, what does African architecture look like? Well, the question is, what is it in the process of becoming? Not what does it look like. It's it it, it hasn't ever had the the space to develop before the the responsibility of defining is is, is with us. And I, I would say it's the same thing about decolonization and transformation. They are processes, not end goals. And in in that sense, I would say, well, to go back to the question of what is the university for? I think in this context, it's it's also a political um, question that can the university afford not to be about that? You know, can it afford to fail a generation of students who are questioning, but where the, the teachers have none of the questions that the youth have and, and none of the answers? Like, what does that mm. What does that paradigm set up? You know, David Adjanel, we're talking, um, he was here a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the kind of second phase of his practice, a lot of the work that he's, he's doing here. And we both said it almost immediately that, you know, architecture is not just about building buildings, it's also about building knowledge. There's a way in which the tools of the architect construct knowledge. They construct our understanding of the world. You know, in places like Africa, that ability to construct an understanding of the world is, for me, almost every bit as important as an upgrade yeah. A slum upgrade, not 
because I don't um, understand the uh, urgency of the slum upgrade, but because the business I'm in is not a four-year, ten-year business, it's a 25, 50-year business, I'm also constantly having to translate between the urgency and the immediacy of now and what happens if you don't do now. Yeah. Well, I like I like your I like your your um, your comments about kind of time horizons that we're working with. I mean, and it makes me think of a couple of things. One is, I mean, I was in a workshop a year or two ago about sustainability, and everyone was talking about you know mm-hmm. new models and new things that they were doing to be sustainable and and you know sort of normal blah blah blah. I mean, it was also kind of like you described this idea of decolonizing, sort of just trying to fix it so that it would then be okay. And you could move on as sort of business as usual. Yeah, yeah. And this this quite aged, you know, professor from Taiwan got up, you know, very old. And he said, you know, what are you guys talking about? We should be talking about 100,000 year sustainability. And, and everyone just kind of shut down because it was so beyond. I mean, they were thinking, you know, how can we exploit the earth in a slightly greener way? And then he was just sort of like... Your time scale is completely off, and no one even had a framework to think about it. Um, and on a smaller scale, I've sort of seen people talking about, often even in, in Ghana now, saying, you know, one of the problems with our political system is that it's also this four-year cycle, and we should be thinking like China, which looks at 100-year plans. Um, and you're talking about this 25-year kind of timeline. But I'm still trying to understand, do you think that the academy can change the profession? Can uh, a reformulated approach to teaching and learning in African schools of architecture change how architecture is practiced in, in the, on the continent? Absolutely. Uh, but if I didn't believe that, honestly, I wouldn't get up every morning. And I've been lucky enough, I think, over the past five years to see that change firsthand. You know, when we started the GSA, um, like I said, four and a half years, I was the only full-time teacher, and I had 27 part-timers. 95% of them are under the age of 35. And what's been really interesting is watching what those students have gone on to do. And the school has played a major role in that because we employ a lot of them. And instead of doing what I think for the past, I don't know, 75, 80 years here, which was that you did your degree in architecture, you came out and became a candidate architecture license and you went to work for a big practice. There's lots of these much more experimental practices now that are, are, are popping up all over the place, partly because Johannesburg's still just about cheap enough to, to be able to do that. Yeah. But an alternative practice has emerged, and the school is very much connected to that. So much so that there's, there are these three or four sort of satellite shared offices around the, around the city. And, you know, older architects have started, or more established architects have started coming to them to see if they can do what here they call research in inverted commas. So if you get a tender from a government, I don't know, to do a, a museum or something, um, and you need a bit of research, whereas before they used to do that in-house, and it would be you know space planning or a bit of budgetary or whatever, they're now beginning to understand that actually there's a different level of thinking. Wow. And it's still it's still salad dressing. You know, you come to the ex-GSA students to get a bit of in-depth knowledge, and, and, and you know they're too young at this point in time to really influence the built environment, but they're beginning to influence in a really radical way the way the general population think about architecture. You know, if the institutions aren't doing it, it also leaves an incredible space for other people to do it. I think it's risky because people 
do things for, for different sorts of reasons. But I really do think it's possible to change culture. Yeah, I really do. In a way, you've expressed some optimism. At the same time, you've sort of, I don't want to say that you've hedged, but you've also uh, sort of counteracted that by saying, even given some of the remarkable sort of progress and, and developments that have happened around the GSA and sort of, you know, how it kind of begins to support an ecosystem within the city and how that can have, you know, ripple effects. But it mm-hmm. can be difficult to sustain that. Um, even the example of the lecture series, uh, which I think in a way is also sometimes a wider problem in the African context is that despite there being so many people and in in a way so much depth, so often things are are tied to a person, even if it's in people's perceptions. Um, And I've seen, especially when it comes to funding, that, you know, oftentimes you kind of have these, these challenges. Anyways, you have all those things, but what... You know, if there's one thing that you feel like, you know, not to say magic wand, but I mean, what do you feel like may be the lever or what is the kind of hinge or, or yeah, the, the lever that could be used to try and scale up is a bit maybe too much of like an innovation yeah. kind of world. But how do we how do we let this kind of approach grow from from yeah. just Johannesburg and how can it infiltrate you know, other schools of architecture in the continent and, to be honest, in the diaspora? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's partly because I'm moving to New York, um, but I've also seen over the past sort of five, ten years that pool of um, Africans who have either been educated elsewhere and they've come back or they, they have a kind of a, a multi, um, you know, a practice that spans different geographies, that pool is growing. You know, in, in the international lecture series we just ran, we've just started a campaign called Homegrown. I'm sure you've seen bits of it. I think your name's going to be coming up soon. It's an Instagram campaign. Every two days, we put out a little post about the the number of African speakers who spoke in this series. And we had 47 speakers over two and a half years, and 33 of those were African. So the, the Homegrown campaign is about celebrating homegrown talent. You know, five years ago, you'd have been lucky if you could have squeezed 10 people. Hmm. And so that pool is growing. And I think we're also, I was in Munich about, I don't know, about a year ago, it imposed um, African Mobilities um, yeah. Conference. And I was there with Mabel Wilson and, you know, there's a bunch of other people who were, were all roughly around the same age. And we were all saying, it was interesting that, you know, 25 years ago when, we, when, when White Paper's Black Marks came up, for example, everybody thought, no, this is it. Of course, everything's going to change now. You know, identity and race and migration are going to be at the center of architectural discourse. And it was such a disappointment. I think I sold 11 copies and the book went out of print. I mean, it was, nothing happened. And a lot of us actually left architecture. You know, I went and wrote fiction for 15 years. Mabel went up and did this. Other people went into art practice. You know, people just literally left the discipline. I think out of a sense of frustration that what was so clear to us 25 years ago, you know, identity is only now becoming an issue of, you know, People hadn't even heard of the term post-colonial, never mind decolonizing. Yeah. But what's been really interesting, and, and for me that's probably why I'm optimistic, is that a lot of us have come back into the profession actually much stronger for the experience of having been away from it. And, you know, I came back into the GSA after, what, 15 years of writing a novel. If I had been in the UK, I'd still be a lecturer. I mean, there's no way I would be climbing up the ranks fast enough to ever become a dean. So people have come back 
um, with a lot more ballast, which I think is fantastic. And it's that community that needs to mobilize now. Thank you.